1: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Go to ProAmericaReport.com and check uh, things out there. Go to ProAmericaReport.com and you can sign up for my daily email, the wink, what you need to know. Go there and check it out. Also, lots of these great interviews. We do so many awesome interviews, the Salem Radio Network and our San Diego, The Answer San Diego. We get so many guests to be on the program, and uh, we turn them into standalone pieces that you can listen to. You go back and you'll see ever who's who, uh, who's who. In fact, one of the authors we had on the show, her name is Abigail Schreier, S-H-R-I-E-R. And she's written a book called Irreversible Damage. We had her on the show about a month ago. It's about transgenderism, transgender craze that's seducing our daughters. That's the subtitle of the book. And we had her on the show. She's really good. She's a really, really impressive uh, journalist. And we had her on the show, and we talked about her book, which comes out in about a week. comes out June 30th. Turns out, if you say something bad, about negative about transgenders, they attack you. And they're attacking her all over the place. Amazing to see. Amazing, scary, kind of scary to see. So um, we uh, we had her on, and you can go, you can find that. You can find all these other interviews over at the answer, excuse me, uh, ProAmericaReport.com, Also the answer san So thank you for being here. And we let's get to what you need to know after this long weekend. It always feels like so long. A long weekend we come in. Well, I don't. Did you watch? I hope people had a great uh, Father's Day. I did. It was a great Father's Day with my family. But did you watch? The rally, Saturday night rally, no football, no baseball, no basketball, no nothing. Just Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at 8 o'clock East Coast time, giving his you know, hour and 40 minute, it was really about an hour and a half minute speech, but he started 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late, so went on for, it felt like two hours. And um, here's the thing that I want to tell you. Here's what you need to know. The fact it was a huge campaign failure. Huge campaign failure, meaning the campaign, the campaign, the people who run the campaign, the professionals, made a terrible mistake. Now, you could, we'll go into it and we'll find out over time what who made the exact mistake, but in campaigns, and this is one of the lessons you need to take to the bank, if you know how campaigns work... Especially of a big, uh, of a higher intensity. I, I ran for Congress. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly, my old boss, she ran for Congress. You have a, if you, if you are either, either yourself the candidate or you are close enough to a candidate and you actively are involved in a campaign, it's very eye opening. You, it's enlightening to see how it works and what happens and the pressures. You understand a lot more. The pressures on the candidate, the reliance that any candidate has to have on his staff, all these kinds of things. Well, one of the things in campaigns that you sort of learn is you never, never, never overpromise and because you don't want to underdeliver. So in this case, the Trump campaign was overpromising the press and the president that you had a million people or some such nonsense and all this stuff. Well, it turns out there was a lot less. That was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. It generated uh, hours and hours and tons and tons of coverage of a negative type. It was not what you want. The president's speech itself was fine. It was a good speech. I think he's a little bit out of shape in terms of his uh, his usual rhythm and all, but he'll get there. He hasn't done this in three months, but he hit the right talking. He hit the right points. He was funny, all that kind of stuff. If you hate him, you saw what you wanted. If you loved him, you saw what you wanted. I think that was you know kind of it, it was what it was. However, the campaign made a mistake. And what we have come to know, and what you need to know, is that one of two things is either true. Immediately after the uh, r- rally, uh, Congresswoman uh, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York announced on Twitter that President Trump's campaign had been manipulated by the use of the Chinese communist-owned social media giant TikTok. And that TikTok had been the at the center of an effort for young people to buy thousands of thousands thousands and thousands of tickets and get mis, mislead the campaign to overpromise and underdeliver. Now, if that's true, that's the answer. That's one answer. If it's true that she just said that and it didn't happen, what is clear now is it could happen. In other words, the power of the social media giant TikTok is now acknowledged and recognized. And admit it. AOC confessed to it, cop to it, as they say. So now the facts are these. If it's true, it's a terrible, terrible uh, interference in our elections. It's an interference in our campaigns. It's an interference in internal American governance by the Chinese government in such a way, I don't know how you let TikTok survive another minute, let alone a day, let alone into the election cycle. Right? That's an admission. If it's not true and AOC made it up, what is true is it could happen and therefore we ought to be worried about it, so on Saturday night, what you need to know is it has been convincingly stated that there is a threat a significant threat by the Chinese communist government to impact our elections in a major way that's now true, and so now we have the communist government the communists in China have the ability the uh, the uh, have the ability to uh, impact our elections. That That's just a fact. And therefore, we have to do something about it, don't we? I mean, we had a, a, a two and a half years of, of, uh, of, of hand-wringing by the Democrats in Congress in the House, a little bit less than that, I guess two years, over the fact that they said... That there were Facebook ads run by the Russians. Turns out there was 140000 $170,000 of $170,000 worth of Facebook ads run by the Russians, some of them pro-Hillary, some of them pro-Trump, but be that as it may, that's nothing like having the ability to impact tens of millions of people like TikTok has, can do, Right. So the fact is that we have to do something about the impact of China. And that's why, you know, for me, I'm about to do a um, I'm about I'm working on a, a webinar that starts this Wednesday, which is uh, my Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, our organization, Phyllis com. I do a lot of education stuff and outreach stuff, and we're going to do a webinar. Uh, about two months ago, I did a webinar it lasted about 10 or 11 weeks. And it was called The Constitution According to President Trump, all about how the Constitution has hemmed in this president according to its limitations, how it's caused the balance of power, all these things. It's far from a dictatorship. In fact, it's proven that the Constitution's strong. But my newest webinar is going to be called This The Problem of Communist China and Our Second Cold War, because we are now in a second Cold War. But more than any of the other threats which we could list, the Wuhan virus, fentanyl, stealing our intellectual trade, stealing our jobs, manipulating international world organizations, buying influence in our universities, all those things we'll talk about. Now we have front and center the impact of TikTok on tens of millions of voters in America. How can we not address it? Right? How can we not address it? We have to. It has to move up our list. It has to move to the top of our list of priorities to address. And what you need to know is that China... Oh, where is that? I'm going to find it. China has uh, has done this. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of us. They believe that they can get away with it because they're testing us, right? They're They're, they're testing us. They're seeing if we will respond to their clear... Uh, you know, impact that what they either did again, they either did it on Friday. I mean, excuse me, Saturday night or AOC has conceded that they could. In which case, don't we have to do something? I mean, we we have to do something, right? I mean, that, that's exactly the point of what's gone on is we now have to do something to address what is going on and what is happening. And what uh, what the story is? So it's a, it, you know what you need to know now is that we over the weekend we saw you know again it's a, it's a um, uh, it was a uh, I think a, a mixed uh, performance by the president. It wasn't his best, but it wasn't his worst. But it was what we expected. But the the, the fumble, the stumble by the campaign is the ble- is to is is at the heart is at its heart caused by a campaign mistake. That was either caused by the uh, Chinese or could have been, and they've admitted that, or it's been admitted. Hasn't? They didn't admit it, but it's been admitted. So, don't we have to do something about it? I mean, isn't that what, what we need to know? We know you, now. You know what you now you know what you need to know. What do we do about it? And what we do about it is it must be stopped. We must demand that our government stop TikTok, stop them in their tracks. Because TikTok is owned and operated, the algorithms that are running on TikTok that would be allowing young people to network and do all this stuff, it would be coming out of the effort of the Chinese government to allow this to happen. It's got to be stopped, right? It's good to know. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we got a lot of great guests. Don't forget, go to proamericareport.com, proamericareport.com, and check out uh, there and sign up if you can, uh, if you will, and get the daily email there. So we'll take a quick break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. <laughs> Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here in the ProAmerica Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Get signed up for the daily email. If you do, you'll get in your email at 5 a.m. East Coast time, excuse me, 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 a.m. East Coast time, just bam, right in your email and you'll get what you need to know from me, as well as links to the most important and, and pressing and uh, prescient articles and, and essays. And you'll get tomorrow. In Tomorrow's American Greatness, there's a piece run by our friend Ted Malick called Are These Really End Times? And uh, Ted Malick, of course, is a well-known writer and uh, a businessman, a consultant, and lives, of course, over in London, but is uh, American and comments on American politics, especially on American Greatness, the blog at amgreatness.com. Welcome back, Ted. How are you?
0: Um, very well. We had a terrorist attack. You might have heard uh, in yes. um, my neighborhood. Frankly, 15 minutes from where I live, 20 minutes from where I live, over the weekend. So, a bit of uh, a fright here.
2: How uh, how is how are things now uh, there on the ground? I mean, are, are, are what did they catch the guy? I didn't even see coverage of they that. They did yet. catch the they guy. Know, I know they have a
0: 25 year old Libyan. Uh, they at first were uh, reticent to say it was terrorism. It obviously was. Killed three people, all homosexual men, and stabbed 12 other individuals, some in critical condition, uh, in a park in Reading, England. Uh, and the person, uh, I mean, obviously he had been on the watch list for MI6, so they knew of his comings and goings.
2: Wow. Well, at least they, a good thing they caught him. Now, your piece uh, that's running in American Greatness is, uh, are these really the end times? And, uh, you know, when people hear things like that a few minutes from their home, there's terrorist attacks and all these things. And uh, tell us what what your piece says and how it would inspire well, you. Well, the
0: list is long of things that uh, are unprecedented, frightening, uh, you know, deadly virus, bloody riots, looting you know, filmed live and archaic protests, environmental fascism. I mean, I would call it the spread of pure hatred, political discord. It seems to be, well, I mean, from where I'm sitting watching, now I'm watching mainstream uh, television and I'm reading, you know, mainstream, mostly mainstream uh, uh, media sources. It looks like it's ripping apart American society, civilization itself. So I have to wonder, given the circles that I grew up in, I mean, are these end times? Are we at the end of the world? So that's, what my piece is about. Um, and I think a lot of people with a religious worldview, with a concern about uh, our civilization, about the course of America, about the very nature of justice, about law and order, are maybe raising the same question. Now, some of them have read the book of Revelation, which is quite frightening, of course, the last book in the New Testament. They know about the four figures you know, of the apocalypse. They know about the ten plagues. Uh, I don't really try to get into these deep theological questions about the finitude of life, uh, mortality of the soul, you know, life after death in heaven or hell. Um, I mean, you can't even talk about those kinds of um, issues in, you know, in modern-day post-Christian era, right? So I'm actually trying to raise this large, mundane question of historicity, which is basically, why are we facing so many tribulations in this very year, A.D. 2020? Are they without precedent, or is there a more nefarious, perhaps even a sinister answer? So well, maybe I got well, you. We're
2: talking with Ted Malik. Yeah, and you can go to tedmalik.com to see all of his writings. So well, tell me your answer. After all that, I mean, do you, because you're right, a lot of people, I think a lot of people are feeling like the, you know, as the old uh, Yates poem says, the center's not holding, yeah. you know, that there's not, yeah, there's, not, there's not something grounding us, and they feel that. So what do you think?
0: Well, I think it's a watershed year uh, for America, obviously, because of the election and because of the turning tides, all these things coming together at once. Uh, what I basically say is, after four years of ceaseless you know, Russian, Ukrainian hoaxes, unfounded impeachment, rumors of collusion, treason, uh, cries of racism, sexism, xenophobia, the entire culture war, against our almighty Trump, nothing has stuck so perhaps blaming him for the apocalypse will be different and they would be willing to pin anything on him our president has taken more flak i say in this piece than the entire landing party on all the beaches of normandy on d day combined
2: well you know and you know I mean, what's wasn't funny you looking at yeah, yeah, I'm looking at the polling. You know, they make the, all these things you hear from people, and they, they, the fake news media are telling you they're saying, "Hey, uh, look at this, look at that." I'm looking at Rasmussen, the the, the uh, approval that they track, a tracking poll, and and uh, at the in this on this date in uh, in um, 2012, Obama's approval rating is 46, and Trump's is 47. In fact, I'm, I strike that, take it back on this yesterday, two days ago, the, a Friday, it was 47 percent for Trump approval. Th- this Friday, two days ago, and uh, and this, on this date in uh, in June in June of 2012, Obama's was at 46. So in other words, Obama, who went on to ruin re-election, who was supposed to be so great, he you know he was in the same spot. I mean, part of me says governing's hard work. Governing's not easy. Governing can be messy. Uh, but my goodness, you know you do you're doing your best in there. And this president has been beaten down. Did you get to watch the rally? I know it would have been the middle late in the night no, or early no, in the morning no, no. for we, you.
0: To- we, I certainly watched episodes. From- So, I mean, Uh it's great to see him back in action. Uh, Right. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, you're talking about the election here, if Trump is reelected, I mean, will not all hell break loose? And, And won't the left go absolutely wildly apoplectic uh, i mean i mean will we have an insurrection insurrection is my question uh you know not just some kind of uh turmoil in in some kind of free zone in downtown seattle i mean i'm really serious about this question will we face a new civil war in america well
2: and, and 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 say it differently I mean it, what honestly I hate to say this if if he doesn't get the house and the senate and he's dealing with these uh the leftists the way they are they're not getting better then you you know you say to yourself well my goodness it was uh, you know we're we just going to be stuck with this for forever now I want to slide over to something else uh, uh and we're talking again with Ted Malik. Ted you were you were I think you were on the faculty as if I can recall uh, maybe a, maybe you were doing research mm-hmm. at Yale but have you noticed yes. this uh, uh can, cancel yale that the the founder of yale or the namesake of yale was in fact a slave trader and so ann
0: indeed, coulter and some others indeed. have been saying
2: well you have to change the name have you seen that one well
0: i have uh, and you know he made uh, m- most of his money on the cotton gin and other uh, type uh, of inventions and then gifted that money to yale to start the university and as all these people do using his last name uh we might have to cancel well, Washington, D.C., at uh, least the monument. Yeah. Uh, right. You'd have to cancel you know, everything with Lincoln in it. They, they tore down a statue yesterday or the weekend of Ulysses S. Grant. Now, I was most disappointed, right. though, when somebody sent me this morning, Steve Bannon sent me a note saying that in New York City they have now, the board has decided to take down the statue of Theodore Roosevelt, my namesake, yeah. in front of the... Uh, history, the Museum of Natural History.
2: Yeah, I, again, I know you know, I, and, and of course, yeah, no, they were well, they're recycling President Trump's comment from two years ago, where he said, "What are you going to do? Take Washington and Jefferson next?" And now they're on to you know, in in California, they tore down uh, uh, the Saint Serra, uh, Unipor, the Saint who yeah. who uh, who built Started built in, all the Sanford, the, the reason it's San life, Francisco. And- yeah. 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 So I mean it, it I I don't know where it ends. Although let me pause and ask you about this all kidding aside. Uh the effort to erase history and you know you've written you've written a number of books on 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 history as you point out and and even your namesake Teddy Roosevelt. Um you know the effort to erase history that that's 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 page 1 of the communist playbook, right?
0: Oh yeah, no, it it, it is that. It's been done before in Mao's China and obviously in at the period of uh, the Russian Revolution, so uh, I mean, let's make no mistake: these are not just cultural Marxists, some kind of armchair liberals in universities. These are the real thing. <laughs> the you know the movements we're talking about, not only Black Lives Matter, but particularly the Antifa, are long-seated European history, uh, radical groups of a communist orientation who want to rip down everything in society, from religion to our statues. yeah, so they're not—they're they're not, they're not going to rest until that's done. So we have to come back. We have to have a way to come back. Uh, the end of my piece, I say the opening line of T.S. Eliot's famous poem in the, you know, the early years of well after the First World War in the twentieth century, *The Wasteland. He says, "April is the coolest month." You know, spring <laughs> springs eternal. Life supplants death each winter. You know, we come out of winter. Uh, and here's a line that i end with that i think will upset a lot of people on the left we are only at the we are only at the end of the beginning of the era of trump
2: <laughs> that's a pretty good that will make him crazy all right i gotta leave it there ted malik go to ted com and see all of his work there but also american greatness am com. you can follow his writings there's a new one up uh tomorrow so we'll talk soon thanks ted and uh, we'll take another quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report be right back this is the pro america report on the answer san diego Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, I'm sure you've heard me talk about him before. I didn't know his middle name, by the way, till I saw his book. Uh, Ryan Godursky wrote a book with Harlan Hill, and the book is called They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. And uh, Ryan Godursky's got a very, very, he's a very good, very strong on Twitter, uh, and I mean that as a great compliment. I go to his Twitter feed uh, to check that out, and he is a uh, writer. His book, uh, his book is available wherever you get books, but also his his weekly newsletter is very valuable you go to com and you can sign up there so first of all welcome ryan how are you today good thank you for having me well, and so let me ask you about the uh, the uh, just over the weekend. I mean, you you are, are what I would call the expert on sort of what's happened, and, and of course your book. They're not listening. How the elites created the national populist revolution. So you got to think that the Trump campaign and, and Trump is a part of that revolution. What do you think of the uh, of the rally in the sense that there just wasn't as many people as they promised? Is there is anything that you feel or see about the the sort of uh, national populist revolution? Is it losing? Steam?
1: Well, okay. I bring up so the book focuses on the global national populist revolution. Yeah. So what what the media doesn't tell you, the media likes to sit there and say it's just old, angry white voters who will be dead in a few years. Ignore them, and they equate it to just you know poor people in in Wisconsin or in Northern England with with Brexit. But what's happening on a global scale is it's happening all over the world, and my my book breaks it down from Angola to Chile to India to Israel. You know, Europe everywhere. I think that when it comes to Trump's rally, you know, people are afraid of the coronavirus. Older Americans certainly are. So I wasn't surprised to see that the turnout was lower. My friend Jack Basobic, who was there, said that there were very few elderly or senior citizens. I don't say elderly, but senior citizens were there. And I have to attribute that partly to the coronavirus. But I think I thought his speech was fine. I thought that everything was very good. And, you know, they had millions of people watching on on the Internet and on Fox News and stuff. But I think that what people what the problem was really was the uh, was the expectation set by campaign manager Brad Parscale. Had he not said that there were going to be. You know, three hundred thousand people there. People would have looked at the crowd and said, oh, "Okay, you know it's a little smaller," but and they would have said, "Listen, coronavirus is around and people are worried." Also, it's in Tulsa, a city of what three hundred thousand people, four hundred thousand people. How many people really were going to sit there and come out as a fraction of the population? So I thought that, that was also part of it. Um, all, you know, had he had it maybe at an outdoor soccer stadium, where people maybe been less cautious or about being outdoors or at a park, whatever, I think that he could have certainly um, brought down expectations, made it smaller, made it tighter, and it still would have looked like an overflow crowd. And just sit there and say, people are worried about the coronavirus. And I think people would have understood. Um, And I think that really was part of the reason for, for the lower turnout. The base is excited, but they are a little frustrated. Now, President Trump is signing an executive order today on immigration, which I think is going to be a big boost to him. If he can do certain things like work on immigration, bring the troops home from Afghanistan, bring home supply chains, really get back to his campaign themes of 2016 as he governs, uh, I think the base will be excited and will show up.
2: Yeah, and we're talking with Ryan Giderski. Let me let me put the, uh, let me put the nail in the coffin on the camp on the weekend. It was a campaign screw up. It wasn't. A, I agree with you. And I don't think I don't think it's an indication of anything that has to do with the populist base. It, it, no politician is the whole of this movement anyway. But let me get back to this because this is where it's important. And again, if you go to Ryan Giderski on uh, Twitter, he is uh, at Ryan Gudurski all one word. And also, don't forget the book, which is available anywhere you get books. It's called "They're Not Listening: How the Elites Created uh, the National Populist." a revolution. that's all across the world, not just only America. But back to this EO today. President Trump is going to sign this EO on your Twitter feed, which is what I was looking at earlier for these kinds of updates. Immigration EO to be signed this afternoon. Freezes most new work visas, including the H-1B, H-2B, certain J&L. Fees on current visa holders increase. New reg changes to H-1B workers and new reg changes on asylum seekers. Now, Ryan A., Where's this been? Did he hope that it was going to be done by law, and it took this long for him to decide? And maybe it is election year politics. But number two, is this good enough for what we need, or is a start? Or what's your sense?
1: You know, I think that it is a dram- dramatic step in the correct direction. I think that the president really got pushed from from a, a million people around him who sat there and said. Um, you know, we need a dramatic change on immigration. I think he's wanted it. And, you know, he's been pushed about the economy and about this and about that. And with 40 million unemployed Americans, you're seeing this conversation about immigration reductions and immigration restrictions go from the quote-unquote fringe of the Republican Party to being a mainstream thought. I mean, you have the biggest talk show host in America, Tucker Carlson, bringing it up every night and, and getting, you know, millions and millions and millions of viewers about it. And and if you look at opinion polls like the Washington Post, not a right wing opinion poll, but they found that 70 percent of Americans supported a halt on all immigration during the coronavirus and mass unemployment that it brought. So I think it was maybe a perfect timing. And the forces in the White House who constantly tell him, you know, Mr. President, you shouldn't do this. What will Tim Cook think? They kind of got shut down. And and from my sources inside the White House, they got shut down by him. He said, no, I want to do this. So I think that it was really just, you know, it was I I give credit where credit's due. And it's important. Is the EO perfect? Is it maybe everything I want? No. As an immigration hawk, it's not everything I want. I want a lot more. But the problem is, I think, for immigration restrictionists or conservatives or nationalists or populists, we get so caught up in wanting every little thing that we can possibly can we kind of get caught up in speaking about negatives only. And when that happens, it allows the people who are around the president to sit there and say, see, there's no pleasing these moderates. It's much more important to, please, to appease, you know, the CEOs of Apple and Microsoft when it's really important that they are and appease the base. They are the voters and there are more of us than there are of them. And I think that this was maybe his his moment. So I will give him praise for this. And, and, and you know, do I want more? Yes. And I hope I can spend more. But we can't roll over and just accept Joe Biden is going to be the next president. We need to excite the base. He's giving us something. Let's praise him for it. And let's start marching into November as a united force. And that's what I bring up in my newsletter all the time. It's what I bring up in my book constantly. And they're not listening, how the elites created the national populist revolution and on my Twitter account. We really can't sit there and just and just, you know, completely full because we didn't get everything we want. It's not a tantrum. It's how coalitions are built. Let's sit there and move forward. And, and, and I'm hoping to, to at least use my voice and my platform to sit there and excite and motivate Republicans and conservatives and nationalists and Trump voters.
2: Uh, we're talking, with, again, with Ryan Godersky and at Ryan Godersky on Twitter. But his book, which is just out a few days ago, is called They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the Nationalist Populist Revolution. And you can uh, he co-wrote it, co-author, to be clear, with Harlan Hill. You need to go find that and, and find out. But also get on his Twitter feed and his newsletters weekly. Uh, Ryan, um, the uh, across the country, I'm talking now broadly, you, you, you're watching this revolution. In other parts of the world, it feels like the, the parties have sustained... More momentum. I'm thinking in my head of like Poland um, and other places where the ruling party that's been aligned with the populist revolution has got sustained victories. In America, you know, is there a coming Republican populist victory? Is it because the Republicans haven't at the House of uh, Representative level haven't embraced the populism in the same way? What? Because you, we you don't hear a lot of uh, great momentum out of the the, the Republican caucus. In the House uh, in this direction that would make you think, oh boy, we could be in for a real populist uh, majority governing next year?
1: Well, I think the parties are starting to realign. In the same way that back in the 80s and 90s, Reagan brought pro lifers as the mainstream of the Republican Party and pro gun advocates as the mainstream in the Republican Party, we're seeing this start happening now. In the, in, uh, among populists and among nationalists. You have congressmen like Josh Hawley, who has been talking about big tech in a certain way and about working class problems. Marco Rubio, who's as established as they come, is talking about how to do pro-Natalist policies to promote you know people having more children. You're having um, a lot of Republicans across the board, most notably um, Jim Banks from Indiana, talk, Congressman Jim Banks, talk about China in a certain way. That would have never happened. Jeff Sessions who's running for the Senate in Kansas, Sorry, in um, Alabama, rather. He is totally different on trade and foreign policy. You have Chris Kobach in Kansas talk about immigration in a certain way. We are changing and we're noticing it, and the voices that used to represent the Bill Crystals of the Republican Party are getting smaller, and they get a lot of press, because, you know, everyone loves the haters, but um, those voices are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and the nationalists, the populists, the conservatives who about actually having america first are getting louder and louder and louder and i think right now we're at a certain point where we have to devise a game plan even a post-trump game plan because he won't be president forever despite his tweets um how do we march into the institutions? (laughs) how do we take over the schools how do we sit there and take over corporations because the left has been working their way through through business boards across the country how do we start moving, either creating our own institutions or taking over um, current institutions and focusing and redirecting our efforts to do that? Because there are business mm-hmm. models that work, that help American yeah. workers. And there are things that we could do policy-wise on a local by local level. Really short, because I know we're running out of time, there's a young kid, um, Riley Keaton, in West Virginia. 18 years old championed all these things defeated an incumbent Republican for the state house at 18 and he ran on how do we improve the lives of workers how do we make families grow how do we improve um, the social status of working class people if he can do it in a small state house district we can start doing it and retaking these and changing the Republican Party, either yeah. converting those currently in office, because these people love power and they won't take, give it up for anything. You know, it's like the ancient Roman emperors who, who converted to Christianity to take over the empire. They didn't really care, <laughs> but they want to stay in right. power. Or yep. how do and how do we march through the institutions and start taking back the institutions? Because that's what's next yeah. is how do we get institutional power the way that, you know, the left has done for decades.
2: All right. I got to run. Ryan Giderski, at Ryan Giderski on Twitter. The book is They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Thanks very much. We'll talk again very soon. Thank you. And go sign up for his uh, uh, newsletter, too. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment.
0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.
1: This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly, and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles,
2: Ed Martin. Judicial supremacists are judges who believe their personal opinions about the way the system should work are worth more than the way the system actually does work. Federal District Court Judge Fred Beery is a prime example of judicial supremacy at work. In the case... Texas Democratic Party v. Abbott, Judge Beery imposed mail-in voting on the entire state of Texas with absolutely no legal ground to stand on. Of course, mail-in voting is a terrible process fraught with fraud. You don't hear about it in the news, but prosecutions for voter fraud happen all the time. Mail-in voting is often the target of these schemes because it's a whole lot easier to vote illegally on someone's behalf if you don't have to actually go to a physical location to make the impersonation. However, the mail in voting problem is not the most outrageous aspect of this case. What makes Judge Fred Beery think he has the absolute right to tell the people of Texas how they can run their elections? He didn't have any legal precedent to cite. He just defaulted to platitudes like this one Citizens should have the option to choose voting by letter carrier versus voting with disease carriers. Even if COVID 19 were concerned with voting, That's a decision to be made by the people's representatives, not unelected judges. Yet Judge Beery thinks his opinion is supreme over the opinion of the people. Judge Beery went further, writing this, We the people get just about the government and political leaders we deserve, but deserve to have a safe and unfettered vote to say what we get. How hypocritical can this judge get? He claims to make his decision to preserve the voice of the people in governance, yet he himself is not an elected representative of the people of Texas. On top of this, he's opening the floodgates to a rash of voter fraud that will further invalidate the voice of the people. Judicial supremacists often sound high and lofty in their grandiose black robe diatribes, but they are a direct threat to the foundational principles our nation was built upon.
1: This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Can activist judges be stopped or will they continue to overturn laws with no regard for the Constitution or the will of the people? Connect with us at phyllisschlafly.com to hear alerts on rulings made by never-elected supremacist judges and to share your viewpoint. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
2: Welcome back, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, let me talk to you about some of the emails people send me. You can always email me directly, by the way, ed at edmartinlive.com, ed at edmartinlive.com. You can uh, text me, 314-256-1776, that's directly to my phone, 314-256-1776, Twitter at Eagle Ed Martin, Facebook, Ed Martin Live, lots of places. Uh, Appreciate all your comments. I got this email from one of our listeners who uh, said this, Um, good morning, Ed. It seemed to me that this is one of God's wake-up calls and it's affecting the entire entire world in such a quick moment in America quick moment in time in America and here's the an interesting thing this woman said by the way this woman's name is Sarah uh, Sharon uh, from Maine she's listening online where was the outrage when China's one child policy and the deliberate killing of girls and forced abortions took place I've had my own boycott of the Chinese of made in China products since the early 1990s and I was told by some that one lonely voice would make no make would not make a difference well it made a difference to me and I even questioned Christian book stars in our area and their suppliers, but the same response, uh, bu- 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 bu. and my point is, um, she goes on to say how her stand, one little stand, uh, made a difference for her. Might not have made much difference past her, I guess she said, but it might have made a difference for her and for others. Here's the thing. You can't wait for the movement of people to stand up. You can't wait. You have to stand up in your space now. You have to get into your space now and be willing to say the truth about what's going on and it's not going to be popular. I did a radio interview this morning and I spoke about the transgender issue and I highlighted how the transgender issue is, uh, is really what, they, what, what people do to young people, what they do to underage people feels like abuse to me and how they justify it sounds like a cult. And I said that on a radio interview. And while I was doing the radio interview, about nine minutes, uh, the radio station got a text from one of the listeners saying how offended they were that I said that. Now I described what I saw as the facts, what I saw uh, described in public, not me making them up about uh, transgenderism and other things. And then I said what that what what it sounds like to me when I think of underage people, underage, underage children. And how they're acting seems like a cult. I don't know. I'm not in the transgender movement. I haven't studied it that close. But that's a description of the character. But here's the thing. If you're willing to stand up, you are going to get knocked down. If you're willing to stand up, you're going to get knocked down. Earlier today, I spoke for a good hour with General Mike Flynn. And he you know, he was talking about all he's gone through and how he's, how he's uh, kept his head on straight and kept his uh, faith right and what a challenge it was. But if you're willing to stand up, you're going to get knocked down. The only question is whether you're going to get back up again. That's just life right now. Maybe in a different time, it was a simpler time, an easier time. And let me, when I say that, I say it's the greatest time to live. It couldn't be clearer what the right side of things is. It couldn't be clearer how great a country we live in. But we've got to be willing to stand up. You've got to be willing to stand up for what's right. You may not have a crowd of people around you standing up with you. You may have only a few, maybe only me and you, maybe your family, maybe not. But you got to do it. You got to do it. That that's what we're called to do. That's the that's the that's the reality of what we're called to do. And it's not right now. just to encourage you. It's not just a um, it's not just a political uh, fight. It's not just a, it's not just about politics. You know it's it's um it's not a uh, it's not we, we shouldn't only worry about the politics of the moment. Because that's not the only thing. It is a big thing right now, and the media has made it a big thing and all, but it's not the only thing. And there's lots of more details, lots of things about the world and about our communities, whether it's our families. You know, uh, General Flynn used the phrase, uh, he said, he talked about his family, his uh, faith, and his friendships. Family, faith, and actually he talked about faith first. His faith first, he said he was driven to, to take comfort with with God and the Lord. He, he says his faith, his family he said his wife, especially, you know, the closeness that they had because they're suffering through this. And then he said friendships. And he didn't just mean that buddies and pals, although he did mean that. He meant all the community around you that are in community, that are wanting the, wanting good things for you. That's what friendship means, right? Is wanting good things for the other. And to me, that's kind of like America. At our best, we want good things for our Americans, our fellow Americans. Doesn't mean we want bad things for somebody else, but we want good things for our fellow Americans. That's our, that's the thing that we're, that's what we strive for. That's the heart of the American, the American uh, system is set up in such a way that you can have your family, you can have your faith and you can have friendships for all, you know, for the, the, uh, all people to succeed and move up and move forward. It's, um, it's pretty, um, Anyway, it's a pretty succinct and good way to put it. But that's uh, that was General Flynn's way to put that. And uh, I mentioned earlier in the uh, show when I was talking to Ted Malick, the Rasmussen track, tracking poll. When people tell you, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh," is uh, something you know, it's gone so bad. It's uh, it's so uh, it's so hard to uh, do. Well, it's um, the reality is we have um, we have polling data from back in Obama's era that make it as clear as can be that Obama was in the same position or slightly worse. And so you're listening to the media spin one thing and make you crazy when the reality is it's about like it, maybe like it always is or always was. It's just, it, it again, it's just meant to make you nuts and meant to drive you crazy. So uh, that's what you're seeing there. All right. Um, let me see, wrap things up here. Let me say, as always, thank you to Noah, our technical director, Noah. I want to encourage you to go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and sign up there for our email and uh, get signed up there for our daily email. Also go to the Diego.com. Oh, here, I'm looking at my notes. I meant to say this, uh, uh, yes, um, on Friday. Um, make sure that if you get a chance... That you go, and I know it's past now, so I'm embarrassed that I'm bringing it up late. But Larry Elder's book is called Dear Father, Dear Son. And it's the best book on fatherhood and fathers. It's amazing. And so it's one that you really need to get for yourself. If you're a dad, if, you're, uh, if you've are if you got fathers in your life that are meaningful, it's very powerful, Larry Elder's book. I'll talk more about it tomorrow. I'm reminded of Larry's got a new documentary that he's in uh, called Uncle Tom, and I'll fill you in on that tomorrow also. All right, we better run. Now, thank you for tuning in. Again, thanks to Noah, our technical director. Thank you to Joanna for helping book things. We'll be back tomorrow night. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then.